welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me down the line is Dr. Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. How are you doing? Uh, good afternoon, Professor. How are you? <laughs> I realised as soon as I'd said it that I'd led, I'd led you into that um, unwittingly, <laughs> unconsciously. <laughs> Yeah, that was, I'm sorry, that was, well, yeah, I'm hoping that that was unconscious and not premeditated. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah, as soon as I said it, I was like, I haven't said that in a long time. Why have I said that? And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe there's a reason. Well, congratulations on, well, both of us, really. You've been made full professor. I've been made associate professor since last uh, we were on. So that's all good news. Yes, uh, yes. Congratulations. Yeah, um, yeah. Nice, nice news. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't think either one of us are tied up particularly on titles beyond how they apply practically in making our jobs better. Hopefully, if they do, and you know, we're not going to turn down the money in this uh, age of economic crisis across the board, even for people as you know relatively privileged as us. But yeah, it's nice to have uh, been given that recognition, and um, let's see in the next couple years or so, how that might uh, affect what we can do in our jobs and on the podcast, if anything at all. But anyway, nobody wants to hear about that. Let's get on with the show. Sure, let's do it. So yeah, this is the season finale for season 17, uh, which feels quite unbelievable, really. Is that more than 24? More than 24. What I mean by that, the, the, the TV series, you know, that's one of those that's, that had thousands uh, of seasons. What's the TV show that had, that's had loads of seasons, apart from something like Coronation Street or, or something? Oh, that's a good shout. Yeah. So we're into, yeah, like MASH territory, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Or Columbo. Oh, God. What's the one, the, what's the American politics one that I love that is just gone out of my brain now? Edit point. The West Wing. The West Wing. Yeah. We're in that territory, aren't we? Yeah. We've surpassed the likes of Seinfeld and Buffy and big shows. So Yeah, well, well past The Wire and, and what have you, and The Sopranos. Yeah, amateurs. Anyway, we're just naming TV shows now. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, um, it's nice to think about that as a body of work. You know, it's like, was that eight years now? 17 seasons, thinking about how we've changed and hopefully grown as people and as podcasters. And it still feels fresh. It, it doesn't feel like, oh God, got another season coming up. You know, it still feels, still something to look forward to in terms of both just the general hanging out with you, talking films, talking to other people about films and, and the thinking of where next season might take us. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's true. And I think, I mean, one of the things for me that consciously I've thought, of, I've thought about is how this season... I've kind of stepped back from using social media, particularly Twitter, not just generally, but as a kind of structuring mechanism for the understanding of what's going on, say in cinema culture and in culture more broadly, and bringing that to, to the show, which I think is a good thing. And I mean, obviously, I know that you're off social media entirely. And I just found I find Twitter completely useless. And Instagram is not not great as a as a as a sort of a distribution platform for podcasting, I don't think. So what that has done is allowed, you know, more of a, a, a discussion that we kind of come up with or a, a series of themes and discussions that we've kind of come up with just according to the people we've spoken to, what's occurred to us at a particular time, what events might have been going on or, or collaborations we've been doing, which is much more satisfying to me than what have people been arg arguing about on Twitter. Let's talk about that. Yeah, it's been nice to sort of remember what we want the podcast to be and yeah, almost to kind of slow down and, and really think about what those episodes are going to be and to take much more 
confidence in it just being us as well. You know, I particularly liked the Godland and Close episode because um, it was just that nothing. Yeah, they were out. They were out. They were new releases, but they were both films that were prompting us to think about things that we were interested in. So it felt like a good chance to do to do that. And you know, I, I can definitely see more of that playing out in the future without a doubt without a doubt especially in between you know specific episodes that where there is a sort of targeted interview or or event or or whatever i think just having a having our conversation at the heart of episodes i think people are are interested in or at least those i've spoken to always say that they enjoy those episodes that's good which brings us to to this episode which we wanted to do just that. And I think this came up when we were talking when you were in London. And I think we were getting onto a discussion about periods of time when we've take, taken away from uh, heavy loads of film watching, for example, or trying to deal with the fact that we, we have to do this in our day job and then retaining a sense of not just the podcast, but generally watching films as a pleasurable experience. And that whole question of joy, fun, pleasure, escapism is interestingly kind of interwoven with an understanding of cinema and why people enjoy the cinema, why people go to the cinema, why people watch films. But I think it's a lot more complicated than it's been, it's, it's often given credit for. And yeah, I thought it, we thought it would be an interesting subject to try and tackle, particularly because we were both feeling at times where we were going through periods where just simply the act of watching films had become a little bit of a chore. And how do you reconcile that with the fact that it's both our jobs, but also we do this podcast, you know, as a labor of love? I don't know. If, I don't know if I'd say chore um, in my case, but certainly, interestingly, the pleasure had gone out of it, and it had become something that was not pleasurable in any sense. You know, it was, yeah, chore's an interesting word for it, but it doesn't quite feel right. But certainly, yeah, like that telling myself I had to watch all this stuff and, you know, I had to watch it for X, Y, and Z reasons, you know, kind of creating this narrative of why I was watching films that was just not enjoyable, you know, and I was watching a load of stuff and not really remembering what I'd seen. The idea of pleasure... I think is really interesting in terms of why we watch films in the first place. And when I started to think about that, I was like, wow, like it doesn't feel like anybody's getting much pleasure from watching films these days. Like no one's really talking about it. It's all, what did this film say? Where was its politics? What is it, you know, what is it about? And I was like, oh yeah, actually it's hard to remember that feeling of, putting something on and just enjoying it, you know, and, and, and I, I use enjoyment broadly and we'll talk about that hopefully in terms of what that could mean, but, but certainly just that it was a pleasurable experience in and of itself feels quite rare, which I think is quite sad. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point though. Cause I sometimes feel that there are a, a kind of two aspects to the ways that people define the pleasure in 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 watching, and again, I, I I do want us to unpack some of those other words that we've used. But I think there is definitely a case that the the as you say, there is a sort of requirement, certainly from people who consider themselves sort of film aficionados or or film lovers or film fans to 
be very clear about there is a narrative of why they are watching that is very clear, clearly associated with with a rationale that's connected to what the film means or what they think it means or what they want it to mean. So if that's fandom, it's like, I'm watching this because I want to be defined as the fan of that thing. And the out and out pleasure of watching it is subordinate. I mean, it, it must be there for fans. I mean, that's the, the reason why you're a fan. But it's more about the enactment of fandom than it is about, you know, just completely disassociating it yourself from any ch- context and enjoying pure a, a pure sense of enjoyment, right? But then also, I think that alongside what you've just said there, and that way I've kind of articulated it, I think there's also a real clear sense of of respite. You know, we talk we can talk about diversion and escapism, but I don't think it's escapism in the same way that say, you know, maybe it was it was quite obvious maybe in the 1940s that going to a big Hollywood spectacle was an escape from this thing that was going out on on in the real world. And that's very clear, do you know what I mean? But I think it's almost got to the point now where watching films or indeed maybe even engaging with with a TV show that you like, that cinema and TV have become a kind of respite, you know, almost a sort of, oh, oh, well, I don't actually care what's on, but it's not the real world, you know what I mean? Whatever it is, I don't give a shit, but it's just, it's making my brain tick over. So I think that's very different, I think, from sort of really embedding yourself or immer- being able to immerse yourself in the film world. It's almost kind of like a, a white noise effect, which is, again, maybe why we get so much of the kind of quote unquote content that we do, which is so, which seems to me so form- formulaic and people are ready to accept it in that in that form much more than they seemingly ever used to. Yeah, I don't, I don't see much, yeah. Critical. I mean, they might be out there. I'm not saying it's not out there. I'm just saying that it, I don't see much kind of critical discussion around the pleasures of TV or film. You know, like, and I've always sort of thought of escapism as not necessarily something it's escaping from, but it's something that's escaping into. Cinema has always been a space to escape into, which means that its pleasures can be kind of multitudinous, as opposed to just like oh, I'm just going to go to escape from. But I do think that yeah, there's become a kind of almost yeah like a a blanket acceptance that engagement with film at a certain level you know if we're talking about mainstream hollywood or mainstream kind of british that it, it that's all it's for it's for it's for a kind of it's for a, a, a distraction from which you know i think obscures a lot of a lot of problems with what those films are doing or those tv shows are doing now which they might not have been doing in the past you know like thinking about the forties, but but you know, I think it's a nice example. You know, forties and fifties Hollywood. These these ideas are kind of escapism, but you don't have to scratch far below the surface to see some really interesting things going on, <laughs> and to feel like that those films are, however, outlandish or kind of fantastical or just kind of stylized, are not connected to sort of real world ideas. You know, this I don't know of many films that are really escapists that, that don't have some kind of connectivity in that way. Although I think now that, yeah, there's there's a case to be made that that, that that is so. I think the other thing as well is like, it seems like a lot of the pleasure of being a fan comes from positioning yourself. It doesn't come from the thing itself. There's a defense of the thing, but again, it's like, well, we're not, there's no pleasure in being critical as in, what did you like? What didn't you like? You know, it's this such a kind of sort of weight of positionality that that kind of obscures whether the thing is even pleasurable in the first place. And certainly 
mainstream blockbuster franchise movies, apart from one we might talk about later, with 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 an installment coming out this year, just don't they don't feel like fun. And it's not just what I struggle with is not just that I'm not having fun, but I'm I I struggle with a lot of stuff to locate where the pleasure could be found because it feels so dour and dark and serious and expositional in terms of its politics. And I'm just like, where where's the fun? That's where I think that that, that sense of a different type of escape escapism is occurring now because you can't escape out of the the ideological narratives in the real world, whether it's to do with race, gender, sexuality, and all of these kinds of things. And maybe maybe you shouldn't be able to, you know, and maybe that's a right-wing critique that is problematic for someone like myself to make, to be, you know, to sort of say, you know, I just, there is a sort of expectation that you are going to be confronted with a series of political ideas or narratives or critiques within a mainstream film that it is parallel to what we have to discuss in in the real world. So therefore, the films are not designed as as escapist in the same way that perhaps they weren't in the past. And maybe that's actually a good a good thing, or at least an acknowledgement that films can't exist in the same with the same sort of stereotypical representations or expectations that that they've had in the past, which is which is good. Yeah, I think I agree with you that there there is often very little out and out joy to be had. And if you take a film like Creed, where you can have that discussion about how it reframes film history and representation, how it brings previously sort of sideline marginalized narratives into the into the center and how it kind of yeah moves moves the conversation on uh, in terms of race and sort of re- racial representations in sports movies. You can have all that conversation and that's great. But you can also just talk about how really pleasurable it is. And people did. You know, that was one of the great things about Creed was the ability to, well, not the ability to, because the ability is always there, but a willingness to say, oh, this is a really interesting movie, but also isn't Michael B. Jordan a superstar? And isn't it just absolutely rollickingly well made? And that feels, even in the time that Creed's been running up three installments, to have dropped off. It's like that... that the pleasure conversation, I think, if it stands next to the other conversation, the political conversation with a small p, if we call it that, that's kind of cinema at its best is when it's doing that in a big way, in a, in a huge, on the biggest canvas with the most money for the most people doing two things at once. And that balance I know is really hard and has historically been really hard to to, to find. And it's not about saying, well, it, I'm, I'm certainly not saying like I'd, I, I don't want my entertainment to have ideas <laughs> that are not just that aesthetic. But it, I, I enjoy being able to do that, being able to say, oh, look what's happening here. There's all this happening at once. And I'm, I'm drawn back to thinking about Creed a lot because the experience of watching it was so pleasurable. It didn't feel like a political agenda movie where it's like, well, we're going to do what they should have done 30 years ago. It was like, oh, here's an interesting opportunity. And also everyone loves a really good boxing movie narrative with with these characters. So it did a lot of work, I think, in that sense. Yeah, I mean, it was funny because I was wondering what, what films you would sort of raise. And I remember you really, really liking that film and not, you know, and you said at the time, I think that you're not, you know, you're not a, a rocky stalwart, let's put it that way, which I probably more am than you, you know what I mean, in some ways, which is interesting. But yeah, it's, it's. I mean, one of the things maybe we'll come on to a little bit later, though, is is the question of how difficult it is now to to have fun and enjoyment in films that are 
older and you know in your heart of hearts are going to be criticized for their representations and stuff like that. And maybe we'll come on to that, you know, when we talk about some some ideas for, for films for people to watch later on. But I think that that's one of the things that I think sucks the joy out of not not for me the pleasure because now again it, uh, linking back to social media it's that sense of uh, i'm not gonna not enjoy something that i know i can enjoy and still have at the same time in this in in another part of my brain that there are problematic things about it and have those two have those two opinions that i can hold at the same time because i'm not going to go onto social media and say oh i loved x because you might get a load of shit back because it doesn't matter i'm having the pleasure so who cares but I think what's interesting, just to sort of to set this up a little bit, um, I read this piece called Serious Pleasures, Cinematic Pleasure and the Notion of Fun by R.L. Rutsky and Justin Wyatt. I found this really interesting because, I mean, it's a, it's an academic piece that goes back to the, the, the very framework of how we understand the notion of pleasure. And I thought it really set up some of these ideas around joy and, and fun and pleasure and escapism as concepts that are related to each other, but not exactly the same. Right at the beginning, it gives a really good sort of pressy of how this has been um, actually quite a difficult subject to tackle for academic film criticism. So just as a, as a quick quote, they say at the beginning, um, if academic film criticism has always been serious about its own pleasures, it has also had a certain difficulty in theorizing a pleasure that was not serious, right? So it's it, it automatically sort of points to this idea that there are acceptable forms of pleasure within academic criticism, right? So they continue, for pleasure to enter into academic discourse, it was necessary for it to be transformed into a topic appropriate to academia, i.e. it had to be made serious. Indeed, within academic film theory, the very use of the term pleasure has served to promote this seriousness. It is significant that film theory speaks of a discourse of pleasure as opposed to a discourse of, say, for instance, distraction, entertainment, or fun. So they go on then in the rest of the piece to suggest that any pleasure that's defined as non-serious automatically gets seen as less than, as decadent or even morally bankrupt. And I don't think that they're saying that's the way it should be. They're just pointing that out as a, as a kind of trend in, in film theory. So what's interesting to me then is that as we are, we're academic scholars, and I feel this in some ways, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place where on the one hand, you can't abandon yourself totally to unadulterated pleasure without retaining some sense of its critical value. Because if you do that, you're putting yourself in the position of being uncontrolled in terms of your understanding of what the film represents. And you move into hierarchies of good and bad pleasures and, and how that's parallel to good and bad films, if that makes sense. Kind of, yeah. So you're saying like, you know, in sort of very layman says you find it hard people sort of say you find it hard to switch your brain off so you feel like you always have to kind of be engaging the critical in any scenario yeah and i think that the i mean it, it's funny because at the at the start of an academic year you always have that feeling with with the students that you're you know, over the next six months, you are going to turn these students who have the, this innocent pleasure of, of watching films into critics and, and, and kind of sucking some of that joy out of them so that they can aspire to have an objective critical perspective, let's say, or they, could, they have the criteria to look at films in that, in that way. So therefore, on the one hand, I, I, the question then becomes, can I enjoy films totally without that anymore? And B, do I want to really? Do I actually want to be able to 
you know, and I hate this phrase, leave your brain at the door. Because I find that I actually, I find that I can't do that. And when I try to do that, it just creeps back in and I get annoyed. But I think if you're actually watching a film, it's impossible to leave your brain at the door. I think pleasure is absolutely linked to your processing of it at that moment that you're, you know, your brain is sort of saying, I'm enjoying this. And I think your brain is kind of acknowledging why it's enjoying it based on a set of things which are often really well-crafted, well-made, intelligent, thoughtful, clever things that are happening in the most base terms, you know, in something like Mission Impossible. (laughs) It's like there's a craft at play. There's a craft at play, which I think your brain registers you know, and I think that's, you know, or it, there's a there's a level of comedy writing and a good comedy or, a you, you know, just a regular comedy. I think a lot of the time, you know, I, 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 I don't like that phrase. You know, I used it in terms of like what, what, what comes up a lot because I think that I don't see how you do it. Like I think when you're enjoying something, your brain is in play because your brain is acknowledging why, you know, processing huge amount of factors into, yeah, I like this, you know, and that might be the only level that it goes to. But it's still happening. In, in the piece that they're writing, so this kind of response to what you're just saying there comes from my reading of this piece, which says that all of those things that you've highlighted there are, are, are rationalized criteria that you've learned to understand and create and then process when you're watching. Isn't there something intangible in the pure sense of innocent pleasure that goes beyond all of those criteria? Like, say, for example... To take the example that you used there, why is it pleasurable to watch Tom Cruise throw himself out of helicopters to the point of, yeah, there's a great craft in in the way that that's been produced and it's exciting and all those kind of things. But there's something about him doing it and not somebody else and and the, the level of action that reaches beyond the mere rational notion of construction into something kind of intangible or that you know that would be a way out of thinking about something that that's not just leaving your brain at the door but but goes deeper than just intellectualizing everything but doesn't it connect you to when you did engage with things innocently isn't it isn't it part of an ongoing cultural museum that exists inside you you know like going back to those early moments of childhood of watching those, you know, seeing certain things on screen and having a very instinctual reaction to it and almost kind of going into something and it just, it taps into that straight away. So for me, I would say that nothing that we do past the age of 10, five can happen in a vacuum. Like the idea that we can ever watch a film innocently if we're watching it in a cinema on our own seems kind of absurd because we are, we are the product of a, by that, even by that point, you know, when you first go to the cinema 13 on your own or whatever, when I did, you know, maybe younger, like there's a huge amount of factors that are impacting, you know, but there's something of the thrill of watching certain movies, which, which does take me back to a very, very early, you know, my very early formative experiences. And some of them are very comforting and innocent, you know, the films I watched with my dad or, the films I watched as a kid that really sort of stuck with me. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose, again, you know, without being all sort of mindful and zen about it, it's does does cinema still have the ability or what, when are those moments when it does produce a sense of losing of the self 
and I admit it's incredibly rare when you get to when you get past a certain age, and particularly when you get to people as grizzled as us, being able to completely lose yourself, where you you do kind of forget who you're with in the cinema or who you know, and you're, the context of this film because it's so it seems to just live on its own as a as an artifact as a thing that you, that's being injected into your brain. I don't know whether that's even even possible, but I just think it's interesting that they say you know that that whenever then we try to think through that beyond kind of feeling it and i'm it's weird because i'm i feel like me and you are swapping roles here because you're much more one who talks in those terms usually about you know i feel like this is this is this way and stuff but it's interesting guys like another quote they say that the pleasures the pleasures that do not serve a rational truth that they have no purpose can only be conceived by academic discourse as, as either trivial diversions or treacherous seduction so in a way they're agreeing with what your first argument is that it's difficult to see anything outside of something that can be taxonomized or has a criteria of why it's why it's pleasurable and if when you do that it's it's just throwing your throwing your brain to the side or as you say there almost kind of like oh i want to go back to being a kid when i had no you know no 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 sort of uh, intellectual capacity beyond what what was immediately kind of pleasurable to me or joyful to me you know well i'm just using that as an example of 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 one way of thinking about it i I'm not necessarily saying it, it, it is possible or not. You know, I haven't, I don't know the piece. I haven't really, what, what I was trying to sort of get at was like, you know, that I think the idea that you can ever do that, I think is, is, is one I'm interested in. Like, because I, you know, I think that you are always, your brain is always doing something when you're watching a film. If you're telling it it's good or bad, there's a billion reasons why it's doing that. Or if I'm, if you're enjoying it or not, it's doing it, but they're not always conscious and they're not always things that, I offer, I'm sort of trying to see it as a kind of almost like an automatic thing of like, okay, I feel safe here. I, I feel safe in terms of like what, why I'm here, what I'm seeing, what's going to play out in terms of the, the type of experience that lies ahead. The other thing that's always makes me think is like, where does, where does experimental cinema sit in this in terms of where the only thing that really a lot of the time you can rely on is how you feel about something like the Man Ray abstract shorts we saw the other week in London, you know, with the squirrel live score, like there's really, they're really abstract works, you know, and, and people do and, and, and write very eloquently and interestingly about that. But I, I can't do that. All I've got is I'm here now. How do I feel about what I'm seeing and hearing? So, and that's, that I, I don't feel capable of doing any kind of intellectualizing in that moment. So I, I just, I give into it. It's a, it's kind of like, well, I'm not going to sit here and think about, oh, what's Man Ray trying to say with these squares? Uh, <laughs> I'm just like, how do I feel about what I'm seeing? You know, so I wonder, I wonder, where, wonder where that fits in. I mean, obviously, it's it's not narrative in that sense. No, no, and also I, th- I think what's funny about that is that you know I, th- I think that yeah it's it's a tricky one because that could easily be co-opted back into the serious pleasure versus hedonistic pleasure dichotomy because I could sit in that with you and sort of say you know that that oh yeah that was really pleasurable in a serious way rather than a I've sort of just given myself over to the abstraction of it which I could say that too to be to be honest but again I think that the the way they get around it just to to round off this article the way they get around it is to separate out in the article is to to separate out fun from pleasure and sort of say that 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 fun is something that cannot be co-opted into any kind of pre-prescribed system of analysis or or critical thinking in that way because you never you never want to try and do that 
So I was thinking like maybe, for example, you know, if you were watching, if you were watching a, um, an animation with your, with your daughter or something like that, you might enjoy the absolute fun that that gives you to experience it through somebody else's eyes, especially through your daughter's eyes. Yeah, hang on. Sorry, Miles is just, yeah, he's just coming. You know, and there's no way, I, I would argue, there's no way that you're thinking about how that is fun or how it can be co-opted into a, a system of, of thought about its relative pleasures and merits. You know what I mean? It just is. And it's almost kind of like the flow state, isn't it? And that's the, what I'd compare it to if, if something that I'm doing, uh, like, for example, playing tennis or something like that, is you're in a state where the, the, the absolute pra- practice is so fundamentally enjoyable for its own sake with no outcomes beyond the immediacy of what it's doing that that's the sort of definition of 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 fun and and those things can't be co-opted unless you unless you end up doing that you know for other reasons for ulterior reasons yeah there's a lot of interesting stuff there i mean it is interesting like watching yeah like when i watched we i took tested to see our first film which was paw patrol ready race rescue which is basically an extended episode of paw patrol and I was aware that this was a bad thing. Like, or not, that's unfair. You know, like, just, I just thought it's, I don't know how to describe, I don't know the words to describe it. Like, it's it's aimed at a very young audience. I guess what I mean by that is I'm watching it thinking, oh, there's there's more that, that could be done here. And it feels just like it's just kind of, you know, it's just, it's, it's a rote thing, which is fine. And But then I looked across at Tessa and she was having the best time. And it was so I was able to enjoy it in terms of that, even if the thing I was watching was not very enjoyable to me in any sense. Like it was hard for me to locate any kind of enjoyment in it as a thing of, on its own. And obviously, I wouldn't have watched it without that, without being there with Tessa. I would. But then when I went to watch Paw Patrol the movie, that was really interesting because I was able to compare it to the the extended episode and find in it moments where, you know, and the same with Sing Two, where it's like actually there's because I'm watching it seeking. You know, I'm enjoying the experience of being with Tessa. She loves it. She's looking at it very, she's watching it very differently to me. But like, I was able to be like, oh, actually, there's things in here that are connecting to me that are fun and pleasurable. I think, you know, there's some really funny lines or there's some nice moments of storytelling. So I think that 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 is possible. But then I think that's just because I'm someone who kind of has those, has those kinds of conversations, I guess. The other thing I'll say as well, like, I think one of the huge shifts for me in the last year is has been an ability to to refine fun and pleasure in films because i'm under no pressure that i'm a, that i've only ever inflicted on myself to talk about them or tell anyone what i'm watching i don't care what i watch now in terms of like my the so, you know obviously if we're watching something for the podcast that's different and if i'm writing about something that's different but there's i'm always trying to have pleasure in that as well but like I don't, I don't tell anyone what I watch. I mean, I put it on letterbox just as a kind of record for me of, of what I watch, but I'm not, not sharing it with anyone. I'm not messaging anyone. I'm not putting it out into the world. Like there's no reason for me to watch this stuff other than what I define as my own sort of pleasure and fun. And that's really shifted how I've been able to make decisions about what I want to watch and how I feel about stuff. And even with the man Ray stuff, I'm like, I don't know if I will ever, will we ever mention this? Will I, will, but it's nice if we do, but it certainly doesn't, nothing, it doesn't drive it. Like, and that drove a lot for me for a long time was like feeling the need to have seen certain things and have an opinion on them ready to go. 
and I just don't feel that way now. I'm just like, what do I want to watch? You know, and then the process is always kind of driven by pleasure. But there are byproducts which are, yeah, kind of what might be termed kind of academic pleasures in terms of using it for teaching, thinking about writing about it, thinking about talking about it. You know, they 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 sort of swirl around in it. Not putting that front and center is definitely, and what it was also helped is helped me try and bring joy to my students. Like one of the things I really realize is they take it so seriously. You know, they come in and because they they absolutely equate what they study with their long-term career job life, it's so serious. They don't really enjoy watching films. They don't know how to enjoy watching films. They feel guilty if they enjoy watching films because it has to have an instrumental value tied to their career. And that's sad. So one of the things I do have done this year is is try and share my joy at movies with my students and try and get them to feel joy and that it's okay to it's actually okay to just watch movies and feel really good for whatever reason. But that's fine. That in, in you know and trust that if the film is of a certain level of craft say to be really kind of general the other things are going to hit you because if you're open to it if you're an open human being the, the art, which is, this is going to sound really pretentious, maybe the most wanking pretentious thing I've said so far, the film is going to communicate with you and you're going to feel it. And then you're going to be able to think about it. And all this stuff is wonderful and swirling. But if you go in being like, I need to extract from this thing, that's that just feels like a bad place to start. I mean, I was thinking about the fact that we come at this from a very specific perspective and... It'd be really interesting. I'm sure there's probably data out there and some 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 qualitative research on how cinema goers who go just you know now and again. Oh, it's funny. I think one of the underserved audiences in terms of understanding where cinema is, sort of you know in the media landscape, let's say, or the artistic, cultural, entertainment landscape, is what about those people who who literally say on a Wednesday or a Thursday, oh, should we go to the cinema this weekend? We haven't done it for ages. Let's just open the, open the, you know, oh, get on our phone. I nearly said open the paper, open the magazine. It's like, yeah, let's have a, let's have a, a more up-to-date reference. You know, they would, get, they would get on Google and they would say what's on at the local multiplex and what drives those, what drives those choices because we engage with people who are either serious in that sense or they're motivated by their fandom, which is that in some cases then they're even more serious to the obsessed sense, right? Or we're very much part of a kind of, you know, the art house crowd, art house critical crowd who are like, you know, have you seen the latest uh, Mia Hansen Love or whatever? So we're coming from a very specific place. And, and, and I think that there are, that audience position it would be very different. So I can't speak to what what that discourse is among the, that type of audience. But I think that's just as valid as any position that we would take in terms of what gives pleasure. Maybe even more so, you know, if you're talking about because there's more more of those those kinds of people in the world than there is of us. That's for sure. But then the other thing, I think, just sort of reacting to what you said there, I think that we're all to some degree completely bombarded by by a the amount of culture that's out there. So there is this sort of simmering 
underlying latent guilt that we all feel that we haven't seen this or we haven't seen that. And it's, you know, it's not just, it's not just cinema, it's television, it's music, it's everything. It's, it, you know, and, and my answer to that is to kind of block off some areas of culture and just say, I'm just not interested. I'm not going to engage at all because, you know, I've got enough to deal with as it is with, with film as it were. But then there's the com- consumerist completism that we're all invited to partake in. But then also the secondary aspect of that, which is to just comment on it constantly. And that's a little bit about what you're talking about. And that leads to that sort of anxiety of, it's almost like hyper Bourdieu, isn't it? You know, that, that, that habitus is so, is so powerful now that to define yourself at all times, you know, to any given position, any, any, in relation to any film or any opinion about any film, it's almost as if it's sacrilege to be able to say, you know, yeah, I saw it. I haven't really got much to say, kind of enjoyed it or enjoyed it a lot, but nothing more than that. You know, that's not a, that's not what people are ready to hear in this culture. No, you can't say you enjoyed it without also having to list all the reasons why it might be problematic. Like it's become an all consuming thing. Like either it's either you enjoyed it 100 percent or you didn't. You can't, you know, like you can't you can't say you enjoyed it if you think that this thing's wrong with it. And I'm that's just never a position I've really held. It's interesting. Yeah, like that that idea of like what what is kind of pleasurable and fun for for people who don't kind of spend their lives thinking about this stuff and which we do in a variety of different ways, be it through work or through the podcast or, or yeah, just through sort of critical existence, you know, like it's, yeah, I'd be interested to see what, whether any of these things that we sort of think are detectable in terms of shifts in what is pleasurable on the screen for people is, has any, there's any relation to how people actually would, 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 would define it if, if kind of pressed about it. I, I, I feel much more, you know, much closer to that kind of process of choosing than I than I did before, where I was definitely driven by, you know, the idea of having to have an opinion on something ready to go, which is just exhausting, and you cannot and cannot be maintained, and 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 it, that's massively what contributed to my loss of of fun and pleasure in it, and you know, I think what's interesting just to kind of to pull it back is like what was lost in that was an ability to enjoy being critical and to be an appreciative in a scholarly or academic way of what I'm watching, to be able to kind of go, ah, you know, like I like that for these reasons, be that, you know, there was a lovely film I watched last night. I had just, you know, which was, it was a good movie and I was really enjoying the performances because I love the performers. And then right at the end, there was just this moment where I was like, oh, this is kind of why the, you could sort of see why the director wanted to make the film kind of for one shot you know like this was this was the shot that they had when they when they decided to to take on this picture kind of thing and that was really pleasing and just it was it was a really great cinematic moment and i was like i just think i might have missed that <laughs> because i'm not lo- i'm not looking for that i wasn't looking for that you know i was looking for the things i would say about it from a certain perspective and i kind of regret that massively but i'm also pleased that now it doesn't define what I what I look for when I go to watch a film. Yeah. It's funny there you were talking about choices for a second because that, that was an interesting thing that came up just last night 
when I decided I wanted to do some more homework for this episode. So I said to I said to my other half, look, let's go see something that you know probably neither of us would just go out of our way to see. And I had I actually had it in mind to go and see the Jennifer Lawrence film No Hard Feelings because I, I, I I've seen that it's been it's a rom com right so you know and I haven't seen a rom com at the cinema for God knows how long and you know I, I always think Jennifer Lawrence is watchable she's exec produced it but yeah I've also seen it's been slated in certain co- corners and I just I would have no expectations of it right and and my other half basically vetoed that said i'm not going to go watch that and that was fine and it's interesting how it's kind of like that there's an immediate perception of i'm not going to like this for whatever re- for for whatever those reasons are but what was also on was Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Now, I back in the 80s, I would have gone to have seen all of the Indiana Jones. The well, first three, I definitely saw at the cinema. I don't think I saw the the last one, which I can't remember the name of now because it was so forgettable, at the cinema. Crystal Skull, that's it, right? And I just thought, okay, yeah, no, that's a good idea. Let's go and see that. But it's interesting how those two films came up on my register as these are things that I can maybe equate to a certain type of pleasure, which is non-academic or non-intellectualized. And can I just enjoy it for what it is? That was my sort of brief to myself, just enjoy it for what it is. And I have to say, I really did enjoy Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny for the first two thirds, at least. I think James Mangold has done a really good job of turning it into a a romp of set piece to set piece, but with a character that connects it together who you kind of believe in and an actor who can who can play that who knows who that character is and what that character should be doing. And there was you know a lot of really nice touches. I thought Phoebe Waller-Bridge was great. Really it's a great role for her. She gets to do all of the things that the indie gets to do. And there's no weird sexualization going on or anything like that. So, and there's no over, you know, politics around any of any anything to do with it. In fact, you know, she's there. Are, I think there are sort of nods nods to her character, a uh, flea bag kind of character in some ways. When my 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 fun and my joy of it all, which I did have, I was like, oh, this is really great. I mean, Mad, Mads Mikkelsen plays the the villain, and he's just wonderful. You know. You know, the the de-aging that takes place is kind of 95% of the way there. It's not quite perfect, but, you know, you're not taken out of it too much. But it, it does that thing, which I think a lot of these blockbusters do, in that the, the final third is where it falls down. And it's preposterous throughout, completely preposterous. But it, it goes to a place where there's a sense of integrity in the first two thirds where the dream log- logic is kind of coherent. And even though it's ridiculous, you can still buy it. Whereas the, at the end, this literally kind of falls apart in terms of time and space, right? But for what it is, I, I really did enjoy sort of being in the company of that character and it referencing back to the older films, which I really... I really enjoyed, but you know, just sort of thinking about it on the outside, I'm probably if I if I'd never seen an Indiana Jones movie before and didn't have that nostalgia for it, I probably would have enjoyed it a lot less. So there are conditions already attached, I think, to my joy. Even though, as I said, I kind of went in with this: I am going to enjoy it for what it is. I know it's not going to give me this message, and I was I was ready for that in a sense. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, in terms of like the the conditions of enjoyment, you know, kind of goes back to what I was sort of trying to get to earlier on. Like, you know, you, we're like, we're, as people, we're like rolling stones and we gather this moss, you know, which is why all of this, you know, I think it's interesting in terms of like, like something like Blade Runner 2049, like who is this for? No one watched Blade Runner at the cinema when it came out. <laughs> yeah. 
And then everyone who picked it up was of a certain age. It's not big in the culture in terms of like images from it are and ideas from it are, but they're not traceable back. So who is it for? Well, it's for, yeah, it's for older white men with a disposable income, really, who generationally spend too much time in a nostalgic bubble as a a whole. But it is reliant on kind of tapping into things which you have accrued in terms of your viewing habits and, and the things that you like that's you know your your pleasure is conditional on on certain things and i find that really interesting because similarly when i was after you said you know doing some homework and going i was like okay i'll watch something tonight and i'll try you know and like what i really thought and again kind of went thought about well, well when i just want to watch something for pleasure what, what am i drawn to well often i'm drawn to who's in it more than anything else you know like actors and then i thought okay who's an act who's an actor i really Who's an actor I really liked? That when I just I could watch them in anything, and it was and I thought of Robert Ryan, and then I love Robert Ryan, and then I was like, well, you know, I'll see if there's any films on YouTube that I haven't seen, and there was a kind of seventy six minute pot boiler with Robert Ryan and Ida Lupino called um, what was it called Beware My Lovely, and I'd never seen it, and yeah, I was like, okay, and it was conditional on the fact that you know. I don't think I, mean, I think it was a very average movie. Neither of their, you know, not not going to be ranked along the films. But I got such pleasure from watching him and Ida Lupino. You know, great actors doing as as they always did. Really, you know, sterling work. And 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 that was those were the conditions that I wanted. I wanted to watch actors I I love watching. That seems to that's a kind of gateway, which I think is 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 interesting in terms of like when we choose these things, what's and the choices, like you say, might not be necessarily be conscious or things that we really, although last night it was for me because I was thinking about this episode in particular. And it was a really enjoyable movie, but I was but I was also going, ah, this is a bit creaky. I've never heard of this director, Henry Horner. And then I'm thinking about the other films that Robert Ryan's made with directors like Nicholas Ray, Fritz Lang. And I'm thinking, yeah, you can just feel the difference here. This is someone who's not, not got that thing that those filmmakers had. Um, but then, like I said, there's this, there's the ending is brilliant. And there's one shot where you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, this was a moment. And it was really lovely to spend time in that, with that moment and sort of see the, almost feel like this is him being a filmmaker where, but yeah, I like it. I, I like that idea of thinking about the conditions that are present in, in, in that kind of enjoyment and those choices. I find that yeah. really interesting. <laughs> no, that's really, really interesting that, that you, the, the kind of pleasure that you got out of, out of that. And I think it leads us on to what we're going to do in a minute is give a few ideas of some films that you might want to watch over the summer while we're off on our break to gain some pleasure. And just, but just a couple of things on that. I think there's two things that come out of what you're saying there about both of our sort of choices. And one of them for me was, I was thinking about how the idea of unironic pleasure is kind of passe because of the kind of postmodern cinema that we've been used to in the last sort of 20, 30 years. So the idea that a filmmaker goes out to make an uninhibited, joy, uninhibitedly joyful film without calling to attention the fact that they're doing that is very rare in adult cinema, I think, today. Uh, yeah, and the other thing I think that is that there is almost a a sneering attitude towards the idea of rewatching, and and I, and I mean this from sort of academic circles. You know that that sense of you would throw something on that you've th- seen a hundred times, and you throw it throw it on for the hundred and first time. I think sometimes gets read as oh you you are ideologically fixed in your position. You don't want change. You don't want revolution. You you want the status quo. And I think again that that sometimes gets equated with that. <laughs> 
a lot of people are up for smashing the cannon for various very credible political reasons. And the idea that there are guys of a certain age like us putting on taxi driver again is seen as inherently against against that, even if it's unconscious, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting that that's certainly a feeling that is is present um, in terms of like the choices that that, that that you make in terms of things you watch. And it, it, it drives it drives pleasure underground as well, you know, like you sort of, you said that about your kind of sight and sound list. You want to feel comfortable and happy with the choices that you've made that they are they reflect you and not you don't want to feel bad about it, you know. Um and and often, yeah, there is a kind of and Paul Schrader talked about this, the kind of performativity of the list to sh- to show that you're on the right side of things rather than actually what do I like? And you know, and there are myriad reasons why we like what we like, including access and that you know the culture that we grow up in and all that kind of stuff. They play a huge role, particularly in the stuff that sticks and becomes those things that we we continue to draw pleasure from. And I think it's fine to acknowledge that. And the thing is, I think as well, it, it, it's it's absolutism, isn't it? It's like if you if you rewatch that for for the hundredth time, that means you must only ever rewatch the same five films, which is not true. It just means that in certain scenarios, at certain times of my life. I'm going to go back to these things because they're pleasurable. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to watch a Bergman movie or a you know a Varda movie. It just means that right now, what I really want to watch is in my in my case, Mean Streets. If it's Scorsese, yeah, of course, of course. So yeah, do you want to do you want to go through a, f- a few films then that we recommend? So you know, you can take any of these as. Films to throw on over the summer if if you really just want to have a good time. What I've done, Neil, is I've got um, I've got a few things that I want to go down on the list. But I tried. I started off by trying to think of the film that I would throw on, and if there was no other film available, and this is Ultimate Pleasure, and that's the only film I've got left to watch for the rest of my life, and it, I just love it to death. And the one film that I came up with above all others in that category was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That is probably my ultimate fun film. Interesting. Good choice. Mine literally just popped into my head like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man <laughs> um, was The Big Lebowski. Wow. I think that would be the film that I just love it so much. And I rewatched it recently and I was just like, it was, I had so much fun. And I'm like, this is, this is a joyful experience. Everything about it is joyful. So that would be, that would be my one for that criteria in terms of like what, what just literally jumped in. Um, so yeah, so maybe I'll do a couple and then you do a couple. We'll just bat it backwards and forwards. Um, so everyone should watch Pacific Rim. I think we've probably, uh. <laughs> we probably accrued a number of listeners since we had our Pacific Rim tete-a-tete way back. So this is just a kind of biannual reminder that I love Pacific Rim and I think it's great fun. And yeah, that, that, can I just that say happened. that I did rewatch that and gave it more credit the second time around? If you remember, I know, I know, because uh, <laughs> it's because it's, it's a it's a well made fun movie it, with massive flaws. So yeah, the films that kind of came to mind were kind of yeah, lot, lot, lots of different things. We sort of mentioned Creed, but the the basically based around sort of crime and pulp. So two Robert Ryan movies, Day of the Outlaw and uh, Odds Against Tomorrow. I would absolutely heartily recommend, and there's there's great Blu-rays of both of those around. And before I go over to you, yeah, I, I get I get a lot of pleasure from watching concert films, obviously. So if you haven't seen Talking Heads, stop making sense, then you should rectify that. That will be that'll be a, that'll be a really good time. Jonathan Demi's concert film. 
So yeah, I've got some more. What about you? Well, yeah, I, I, I sort of bunched. It's very hard to do one, isn't it? But I, I, so I sort of bunched them into into kind of different types of joys and pleasures, a little bit like you've done there. J- just to start off with big action, I would heartily recommend watching, in preparation for Dead Reckoning Part 1, I'd hard, I highly recommend watching Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, not Fallout. You can watch Fallout as well, but Rogue Nation is still better than Fallout. And that's just the truth. But it's obvious that that when it comes to franchise movies or or big budget action, I like the films that are set in some semblance of the modernist reality, right? And I I watched the documentary, the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary on Netflix. And after that, I went back and revisited True Lies. And that is a great action film. If you haven't seen Arnold Schwarzenegger essentially doing James Bond with Jamie Lee Curtis as his unsuspecting wife, a little bit Mr. and Mrs. Smith style, then you should go and go back and watch uh, P. Carney in, in True Lies. Good shouts. Um, I'm also going to recommend, uh, I've, been trying to, I've been trying to mean to watch this double bill since we saw, well, for the last month or so, and I write about it in the newsletter, but a double bill of Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law followed by Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. I think that was going to make, that's going to be a really pleasurable double bill when I, get around to that this summer. So we should all watch that double bill at some point. And I still want to do a proper Jarmouche deep dive at some point. And then spend time with 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 a couple of films that inspired Jarmouche, maybe something by Seijun Suzuki or Jean-Pierre Melville, I would recommend. Um, and of those, Le Samurai and Branded to Kill, I would say. And i got one more, but what about you? Oh, actually, no, sorry. Um, sorry. And just before... Um, Go for it. Uh, Joe da- uh, a Joe Dante uh, marathon, Burbs matinee. Uh, gremlins great yeah well I, i've got a jam i'll just come to that in a second but but my my next category is is kind of like the 80s 90s high production values drama and i think that that is one of the one of the kind that is the kind of movies you don't see very much anybody anymore and i'm thinking probably the closest one the one that i would throw on all the time that's very recent is probably moneyball um, and the big, the big short is probably in that category as well. But I think there are some from the eighties and nineties that are so good. Um, like say, for example, a few good men, if you haven't seen that in a while, big, I'm, I'm talking big names. The money is on the screen. It's well-written and well-directed. So a few good men training day. I can watch Denzel in anything, go back and watch that. Um, Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. And I love Jake Gyllenhaal being psycho. That's my favorite Gyllenhaal, uh, you know, performance. And, and, and I actually sort of watched a court again, the end of Thelma and Louise, cause it just happened to be on one of the streaming channels. And that's just, that's just wonderful. It's just so good. And all of these movies I think are the types of movies you don't see so much anymore. And then my second to last category was films that are very emotionally, wrought um but i have a very kind of highbrow kind of aesthetic so if you haven't seen it you know i know a lot of people are talking about one fine morning and bergman island but go back and see all is forgiven by mia hansen love and prepare to be destroyed i would also recommend cold war pavel pavlikowski one of my favorite movies of the last few years and my Jarmouche recommendation would be of course patterson uh, which i re-watched again recently and it's just it's just a beautiful film it really is yeah, nice, nice. Weirdly, a film popped into my head, and I think it's because you mentioned Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, and then you mentioned a nineties kind of high high quality drama, um, and that's a Quiz Show, which I haven't seen in a long time, but I would really like to rewatch Quiz Show. So I might rewatch Quiz Show because I remember that being a, just a just like this is a great movie. I wonder how it's when it's held up. 
Yeah. So my my finals or two recommendations kind of fall under those pleasures that kind of encompass the pleasure of a number of things like craft. I was I listened to the Pod Thomas Anderson series of podcasts, which is quite interesting. Um, but one of the things that sort of came up a lot, particularly in his early films, was like people criticizing him for showing off and like being too movie too too movie movie. At the age I am now, I think I'm just like I want to see people making fun making movies and having fun with the form. The idea of showing off to me is like, yeah, just I'm watching a film, you know, remind me I'm watching a film kind of thing a lot of the time. Having that fun in the what the craft, virtuosity, and again, dialogue as well. So, you know, obviously he's great for that. Um, and any Billy Wilder film really is 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 great for that. But the last choice would be um inherent vice. Um because it gives me the pleasure of looking at a beautiful i mean people say it looks dingy but i just love that it's aesthetic i think it's aesthetically but also you know uh, stand up for the the idea that melancholy and can be can be fun you know like it's okay to be sad and to enjoy being sad and the idea of like listening to sad songs and finding pleasure in it you know that for me is just a big great it's a great big sad song of a film um and i just love it and I think it's beautiful and it sounds great. It looks great. It's got great performances. And it weirdly just leaves me feeling good, even though it's a it's a sad movie, you know? Yeah, brilliant. So my last category is out and out comedies, which I know we had a, a long discussion about that. And I'm I'm much more of a somebody who generally likes comedy performances within drama movies when they work really well. But just two out and out comedies I would recommend. The first one is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And I just think that Steve Martin, and both of these films I'm going to recommend are kind of buddy movies. And I just think that Steve Martin in the scene where he's playing Ruprecht is so politically incorrect and so funny. You know, it will literally either, when you watch this, you either think, oh my God, Dario, I never want to, I never want to speak to you again. Or that is really funny. You know what I mean? It's, it, it's just great. And, it, and I like it because it's set in this kind of, you know, on the make uh, confidence tricksters and one of them's that you know michael kane plays the, the the master of this and he's trying to train um they're the very much down at heel steve martin and it, it's just great how it, it amazing funny scenes all the way through and the other movie that i want to re- recommend is the hard way which i know we talked about in the past i think and we were on about screening this at one point but i think with michael j fox his doc yeah, Michael J. Fox with his documentary coming out. And I think it would be really easy to say, I recommend Back to the Future, you know, as a fun time, because it definitely is a fun time. But I think, you know, with that documentary, it, you have to be reminded of what a great comedy actor Michael J. Fox really is and what a great career he had around around Back to the Future on television and in the cinema. And in this movie, he kind of plays a version of himself who wants to... Um, land a role in a cop in a grizzled cop movie so he's, he's sick of being a comedian in in hollywood and wants to become a seriously taken actor so he ends up doing research alongside james woods who plays this super tough new york cop so it's the kind of throwing together of these two personalities and there's just some amazing scenes of of james woods just getting absolutely annoyed and irritated by having little Michael J. Fox wanting to know how to be the, the the best cop in the world kind of thing. And it's just, yeah, it's really, really worth it. Great fun. And now James Woods has made a career out of just being annoyed by everything all the time. <laughs> but 
we can keep those two things in our head at the same time as we've just discussed <laughs> absolutely i will watch videodrome any day of the week. um that's a, that's a great show sure. i think we have we have talked about the hard way and screening it so i think i'm going to rewatch that uh, it's, that's my summer homework as and dirty rotten scoundrels is is amazing i love that movie so much so that's a great shout yeah lovely lovely list of of stuff to to spend some pleasurable time with great well neil lovely to do uh another season with you it's been it's been a pleasure it's been a joy all of those things and yeah you know obviously great to great to have you back um after your break and be sort of back in the saddle as it were and and you know and, and obviously i think that the, the the discussions that we have are the are the the backbone of what what we do here so um yeah rounding it out like this has seen, has been really really fun so so thanks for that Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the welcome back. Thanks for holding the fort. Thanks for the fun. It's it is it's great fun. I really yeah really enjoy it. Yeah, it's it's been great. It's lovely to be back. And yeah, it's it's been really nice to be welcomed back by listeners as well. Um, had some really lovely messages from people, which has been really nice. So yeah, I'm glad to be back, and I'm here for here for the next round. Let's do it. Awesome. And uh, yeah, thank you to everyone out there for your continued support. We really uh, uh, appreciate it. You know, let us let us know. I mean, please email us on, on cinematologist.gmail.com. I'm we're, I'm more on Instagram now than I am on, on Twitter, but you can catch me on, on both of those. You can get both of our work emails if anybody wants to get in touch. We've got a few episodes that are definitely going to run in the new season from September onwards. But if anybody out there has any ideas for collaborations or indeed, wants to be interviewed about amazing work that they've done then 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 tap us up there may be a space there that we can uh, that we can fit you in and especially if you've got an event that you you want to run and you want you want to talk about us rocking up to and maybe covering we like to do that but we tend to get notices about that very late in the day and we can't do it at like one or two weeks notice yeah and we and there's a cost implication as well so we need to discuss that so we're very up for coming to people's gigs and and you know festivals and all that kind of stuff but we need we need prior notice to be able to to do that but thank you very much for everyone who continues to to listen and uh you know enjoy the podcast well said with that in mind, let us bid adieu until the autumn uh, when we'll be back for season 18. But for now, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.